to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host, Carl Za. Today is February 17th, 2020, and I have a very special guest all the way from Thailand, Josh Summers. He has been a long-term resident, long-term China expat, uh, who had resided in Xinjiang, the northwestern province of China that has been on the news a lot lately. Um, and he has been living there since 2006. So he has a lot of firsthand on the ground experience, which I'm very excited to have him on the show to talk about. Uh, welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, just a disclaimer, I do have two puppies uh, in the house, so sometimes they make <laughs> weird no background noise. I apologize for that. Um, where are you based right now, Josh? So I'm up in northern Thailand right now. I'm here with my family for, gosh, only about six months now. It hasn't been too long. Okay, so you are... Uh, oh, at what point can you call yourself an expat? <laughs> I don't know, because I'm recently I, moved to Bali myself. Yeah, I think the moment you move, you can call yourself an expat. I think the the question is, at what point do you consider yourself like a long term expat? Is that six months? Is it a year? And that I'm not so sure about. I mean, I, I definitely thought you know, ten years in China qualified me for some sort of you know, label like that, but, uh, you know, maybe a year here in Thailand before I would be comfortable saying that I am a Thailand resident or I am a long-term expat in Thailand. I don't know. I understand completely. I mean, I just lived in, I have been living in Bali for seven months now, and it feels kind of weird to refer to myself as an expat. That's why I asked that question. But yeah. undoubtedly, you definitely qualify for long-term China expat, which is what, what you are here to talk about. Um, can you just tell us how you end up in China? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was back in 2006. So I got married in 2005. And, uh, and it was, there was a compromise between my wife and I where she wasn't sure she wanted to have kids. I wasn't sure that I wanted to move overseas. And so we compromised and said, I will you know, move overseas for a year or two and she will have one kid because I really wanted a family. And, uh, and in the end, we, we now have two kids and we've spent the majority of our married life overseas. And so that was that was kind of the start of it. We, you know, we were looking for something immediately after we both graduated from uh, university. And the thing that kept popping up was this one opportunity that was way out in Western China. And I think one of the things that we were looking for was we, we didn't want to move to like this major hub. We didn't want to go to Beijing. We didn't want to go to Hong Kong. Like uh, both of us come from a bigger city. Like, I'm, I'm from Dallas, Texas. And so, I mean, it, it's not a massive city, but it's a, it's, a, it's a city. And in the end, we really wanted to go to a place that was a little bit smaller, a little more small town feel. And in China, anything below a million people is considered a small town. Yes. And so we, we found ourselves in a city, surprisingly, with only about 400,000 people in Western China. And that was a really small city. What's the name of the city? The city we started out in is, uh, in English, you'd call it Karamai. In Chinese, it would be Kalamai. And uh, it's an oil town up in western Xinjiang. How did you decide to settle in Xinjiang, though? Did you, did you know anything about the region of Xinjiang before you settled there? 
No clue. And you got to keep in mind, like Xinjiang didn't really even make the news much before 2009 when we had those major riots. Yeah. And so it wasn't it wasn't like Xinjiang had a good or a bad reputation. It was just it was an unknown place. And so for, for us, it was just a matter of there was a connection of a connection that knew of a teaching job out of yeah, for a year. That would be fun. Not really knowing what we were getting ourselves into at all. Wow. <laughs> wow. How old were you at the at the time? I think it was 22 or 23. You okay. know, old enough to know what I was doing, but young enough to still find an adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I figured to do something crazy like that. Um, I, I And I bet adventure it is because it's like Xinjiang for people who are not familiar. Um, it's a, a rather different part of China. It's it's basically a piece of Central Asia that just happened to be in the within the borders of modern modern China, and it has a very different uh, culture. And oh, well, actually, why don't you describe it, Josh? Because since you are the long term China expat here, <laughs> no, I was enjoying your explanation there. Um, I, I think geographically. A lot of people refer to China as the rooster, if you look at the shape of it. And if, if China is the rooster, then Xinjiang is like the tail feathers. Uh, where we were in Kermai was up near the border of Kazakhstan. Uh, we were probably less than an hour's drive from Kazakhstan there. Um, the borders Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. So, Carl, what you said there, being part of Central Asia is absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, I know a number of people that when they land in Xinjiang, their first thought is that they've actually traveled to a different country because it's completely different than what you'd imagine when you think of China. Because most of us, you know, Westerners, when we think of China, we think of what we, you know, scenes from Beijing or Shanghai or even even Xi'an. But but when you get out to Western China, when you get out to cities like Kashgar or Turpan or Urumqi, the capital, it, it takes on a different, more Central Asian flavor. So you have a different cuisine. You have different look of people. So the Uyghur people or the Hui people of Xinjiang, they look more like the Central Asian people, you know, like Uzbeks or Kazakhs than they do Chinese people. They have a, a language that is much more similar to Arabic than it is to Chinese. As a matter of fact, the script is the Arabic script. And so a lot of the signs that you see when you're driving down a road in Xinjiang have both the Chinese and the Arabic script uh, for both for both people groups. And so right now the population is split about 50-50 uh, between what we would consider the Han Chinese. And Han Chinese are like the, the traditional Chinese that we think of throughout China. And then the Uyghur, Kazakh, Hui, mostly Uyghur people, which are much more Central Asian in nature. And so it's it's just a very unique, I didn't know this when I first went out there, but what I learned is it's it's absolutely unique in terms of what China has to offer. Uh, and in my opinion, makes it so special because you can experience a number of different cultures, a number of different cuisines, a number of different languages without having to travel to different countries. It's all in that same one location. Uh, yeah, for most of Americans here, we get um, like a kind of filtered <laughs> image of China. And, uh, you know, because people think of China before the 2008 Olympics, people think of China, people think of, uh, you know, pa rice patties and mouse suits, right? And after yeah. 2008 Olympics, people are like, oh my God, you know, China is like ultra modern, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, skyscrapers, uh, high speed trains, etc. 
But what people don't realize, you know, China is uh, the current modern state of China is it's a, like has is a legacy of these thousand year old empire that kind of brought in a whole range of geography and people together and. And she, China is just a huge place. It's it's a continental size uh, area that's uh, comparable to to United States. And uh, the, the the people people in Xinjiang that that area was populated by many like Turkic speaking Muslim people. Uh, what very different from what we in U.S. think of as, as Chinese people. But China is a multi ethnic. Uh, a state with many many ethnicity you especially it's much more uh prevalent in places like xinjiang or yunnan like the borderlands of china and uh, so you speaking of the china chinese map as a chicken so you're basically near the butt of the chicken <laughs> i would if i were to say i would think tibet would be the butt we're the tail feathers up in the north <laughs> okay Okay, so for people who are a little bit more familiar with uh, geography or China, uh, Xinjiang is divided by this huge mountain range, the Tianshan Mountains, uh, Heavenly Mountains, and and the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Karamai is on the northern side of Xinjiang, right? It's on the northern side of the mountain. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, and and the the uh, Karamai was originally um, developed as an oil town, I think uh, back in uh, back in like either 1900, early 1900s, the, the, the first the Russians and the Soviets started exploration there. And and it has always developed. Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a different place within Xinjiang itself, because as I understand it, Karamai is a kind of um more like an immigrant town because because it's an oil town. So a lot of, uh, you know, like not say many people are like born and raised in Karamai because a uh, lot of people came there as oil workers or, or, or attached company, et cetera. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I once heard a, a story or just, you know, a little saying that I thought was funny that if, if there was a banquet in Karamai, that both the mayor and the head of the oil company were attending. The head of the oil company would sit at the head of the table, and the mayor would be the second, <laughs> the second seat. If that makes sense. Oh, wow. So in other, in other words, the the oil company is what runs that town. Yes, yes, and that uh, I mean that oil company, I believe it's uh, Petrol China, right? Basically, the one giant um, Chinese uh, state oil company that kind of like yeah. runs. Thing. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and uh, okay. Then, then tell tell us a little bit. I, I'm more interested to uh, find out what was your first experience, uh, w impression when you first landed. You know, I, I think that I was I was very. How would you say this? I was very naive, mostly because this was my first experience in Asia. So it's not like I had experience in in Beijing, and it's not like I'd been to um, Thailand or any of these other countries, like the first time I'd ever flown into Asia, I landed in Karamai. And so this, this whole, this whole experience was, was new in, in every respect. And so my first impression of China was Xinjiang. And I think that's, what's interesting to me is that when I, when I describe it and, and I talk to people about 
the Xinjiang region, and, and especially even the changes that have happened over the past decade, I come at it from the perspective of th this is what I've known China to be. Whereas those people that, that come from, you know, traditional China and then try to experience or understand Xinjiang, it's just, a, it's, it's very, very different. And so for, for me, you know, landing in Xinjiang was like landing in any other country, you know, where you're just, you're an expat who's wide-eyed, very naive, and not quite sure what he's getting into, right? I didn't know the language. Um, I, I was, I remember the first time, like this is, it took me a week to find peanut butter in the grocery store. And when, I, <laughs> yeah. and when I did, I was so excited because I couldn't figure out what food was any good. There were, this is, keep in mind, Carl, in Karamai at the time, there were no other foreigners. So we were the only foreigners in the city. So it's not like I could go up and ask somebody, hey, can you show me the best restaurant or what are some great places to eat? So I, I mean, my wife and I were having to figure all this stuff out on, on our own, wow. and and you'd be surprised. It, it takes a long time because you know you you get a dish, and you know maybe the dish you know gongba jiding is really good in this restaurant, but it's terrible at this other one. So maybe if we happen to first try it at a place where it's not that good, then we tend to think, oh well, then that dish isn't any good. But no, it's actually you know another restaurant does it really well. Or well, what's another dish that we really liked? But I think that was the big one was just trying to find food that to us was edible or, or, or better said, trying to give our palate enough time yeah. to adjust to this new cuisine. Yes. And, and how do you find the cute local cuisine? I mean, after being there for 10 years. Oh man, I love Chinese food. Matter of fact, we, we love it so much that my wife and I have actually been going around Thailand trying to find authentic Chinese restaurants um, because, you know, the, the Western renditions of Chinese restaurants just don't do it for us anymore. <laughs> they got to have the real thing. I completely understand. But um, the, Xinjiang, the, the Xinjiang cuisine is also a little bit different from the, the, the traditional Chinese dish, right? Correct. Yeah. So the Xinjiang cuisine has two main differences. One is that it's based on mutton, which is lamb meat. Uh, and so, you know, you're you're dealing with lamb meat instead of, let's say, beef or chicken most of the time. And then the second thing is that it's it's very noodle based. So you've got a lot of noodle dishes, um, which, you know, in some parts of China is, is actually common, but in other parts, it's more rice based. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it, it can be oily, it can be heavy, but it's also just really delicious. And it is completely different from the Chinese cuisine. Like if you set two dishes side by side, you can almost tell by looking at them that, oh, that that's not Chinese, but that is Chinese. It's it's yeah. it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's your favorite? <laughs> oh, what is my favorite? Um, I think the the, the Uyghur people have a, a rice pilaf, which is kind of common throughout all of Central Asia, but they call it polo. Yes. And it is if you get a good plate of polo with really well cooked mutton. It, you, you can't eat that. It's just so delicious. Just thinking about it make my mouth watering right now. Um, I'm, I'm sure you don't have anything like that in Bali, do you? No. Well, in here we have like the satay, the gold satay, but it's uh, nothing, nothing like the yeah, not nothing like the Central Asian pilaf. Uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, one question: When you first got there back in 2006. You and your wife, did you get a lot of stares from people, from the locals? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think for, for most of eastern China, 
the, it used to be decades ago that you'd walk down the street as a Westerner and people would, you know, stare at you or look at you and, and be in awe of the fact that there's a foreigner. But nowadays, nobody really cares, right? It's just yeah. another face walking down the street. But in Western China, it's a, it's a decade or two behind. So I'd say in the really small towns that don't have, see a lot of tourism, you'll still get a lot of those stares or you'll still get children coming up and like, rubbing your arm to, you know, to feel what it's like to have hair on your arm, you know, like for some reason <laughs> oh they, they think that's really weird. Yeah. Um, but I'd say in, in the larger cities, so let's say the, the capital of Urumqi or the western city of Kashgar, um, those both being in the Xinjiang region, being a foreigner, I mean, they, they don't even look twice anymore. Yeah. yeah. How, so how long did you stay in Karamai? We stayed in Karamai from 2006 to, when was that, 2010. Oh, four years. Okay. Yeah, so we were there for four years, and then we went to the capital of Anunchi for another four years, or five. Oh, so that means during the 2009 Urumqi riot, you are still in Karamai. Correct. Yeah, we were in Karamai during that time. We actually went down to Urumqi a couple days after the riots. Wow. Um, that that's because you guys had a pre-planned trip, right? Beforehand. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, and and what? Okay, that's my puppies fighting in the background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're they're about like six month old uh, Balinese uh, and pong. I, I we think uh, pong mix, and they're wow. super cute, and also they fight all the time. So uh, just ignore <laughs> them. <laughs> and let's talk about Xinjiang. Um, That's fine. So you, so like, can you describe to us what was it like? Just happened to be in Urumqi just just few days after the riot, because that was a, like a kind of watershed moment in the recent Xinjiang history. Yeah. Um, well, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll back up just slightly for those that maybe yes. don't know exactly what happened. Because um, in July of 2009, everything up to that point you know, up in, until July 2009, there are two what I would call diametrically opposed people groups, right? So you've got the Han Chinese that are atheists and the Uyghur that are Muslim. You've got Chinese that love pork. You've got Muslims that hate pork. You've got like it, just all of these things that really, they, they clashed. And for the most part, people just lived with it and were okay. But I think looking back, we now know that there was just a lot of stuff that was boiling under the surface and hadn't yet made its way to the top. And, and uh, it's been painted in the media as being, you know, a religiously motivated or described this as being religiously motivated. But I think more than anything else, it was just ethnically motivated. You've got two ethnicities that just don't mix very well and they're being forced to kind of live together. And so in July, it all kind of boiled over. There were some um, things that had happened in southern China that people weren't happy about related to the Uyghur people. And so what would what had started out as kind of a um, what I was have heard and understood to be a peaceful protest turned into something that where they were just enough people got this mob mentality that a riot happened in the streets. And, and the government of Xinjiang just was not prepared and ready for something like that. And so it ended up that hundreds of people died in the in the aftermath of all that, both in the you know the, the initial riots and then there were actually some. <laughs> Sorry, about my, my puppies. Right. They they decided yeah. to uh, join in the fun. What yeah. what I wanted to ask uh, about is your kind of maybe personal experience before yeah. 2009. 
um, did you did you like experience that kind of like ethnic tensions while working out in Karamai or or was it like more at the time was just seen papered over that was people are not aware? Um, I think a lot of it was under the surface. I, it's easier to see 2020 when you're looking back. Yes. And, and I see now that there was a lot of segregation that was happening that just wasn't healthy. So you have, you know, neighborhoods that are Uyghur and neighborhoods that are Chinese. And you don't really have a mix of the two. You had schools that were Uyghur and schools that were Chinese. And rarely did you see a mix of the two. And so it was it was always kind of this segregation that, that like I said, just wasn't healthy. And it was set up to eventually boil over into something. I mean, you're you're asking me about my experience, you know, prior and yes. and I remember, you know, the the neighborhood that I lived in had it was very open. I had a lot of entrances and exits. I remember it was just very um I, I don't know, it just it just felt like a nice neighborhood. And you know, fast forward 10 years, well even just fast forward to 2009, but but even to now, I've been, I've been back and, and visited my old neighborhood, and and now there's one entrance. Everything else has been sealed off. There's one entrance where you can enter and exit, and you have to you know go by a security guard and have your ID scanned in order to get in and out. There is cameras set up, face excuse me, face recognition cameras set up every gosh, it feels like every 20 feet. But to get from the to get from my bus stop to my apartment, I would pass eight different security cameras and that are that are, I would assume recognition cameras. And it's that type of change that it didn't happen overnight. It was gradual, but it's because of, you know, all of this unrest that has been happening that, that China has really taken a different type of um, stance on Xinjiang and especially on, um, you know, just the monitoring of the people and everything that's happening. What um so be prior to 2009 uh, the neighborhood you live in was it a mixed neighborhood what what type of neighborhood is it No it was mostly a Han Chinese neighborhood I didn't have a choice at that time uh at, well we were the only foreigners but but they told us that all foreigners had to live in this building and so we didn't we didn't get to we didn't get to shop around and look at different apartments we okay. entered the one yeah. that we got yeah, I understand. And and Karamai, I think it's a it's a majority Han Chinese tongue, right? Because of the oil oil business. Yeah, it is. It doesn't have. I mean, and like you were saying, it's only got a history of maybe seventy years, and so you know there there's only been two now generations that have actually been born and raised in Karamai, and so it's not got this history of a specific ethnic group. It's it used to be just desert. Yeah. So so then. It sounds like when the 2009 Urumqi riot happened, it, it, it sounds like it's a, it came as a shock to many people who live in Xinjiang. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, it was it was a it was an eye opening moment when everybody realized, I, I think, that that everything that's that we've been kind of feeling under the surface is is actually um, going to make a difference in our lives. It's kind of like that moment when you realize after, you know, as an American after nine 11, yeah. that, Oh my gosh, now a life and the way we know security and going through an airport is about to change. Like it's, it's just this, Oh my gosh, this is, this is really happening. And I think it was that same feeling of, I don't know what's going to happen, but there are going to be some significant changes. 
changes here. That was a Western perspective. I think from a Chinese perspective, and even from a Uyghur perspective, there was a lot of fear because not knowing, you know, how is this going to affect my relationship with my, you know, the, the ethnic group, of, you know, opposite of me, or how's that going to affect my life as a as a Uyghur person who's just trying to live a normal life and and now being kind of typecast as a terrorist almost. Yeah, I remember that kind of uh, change in perception uh, in China because I actually grew up in China in 1980s. And back wow. in 1980s, I remember, you know, the, the Uyghur people on Chinese state media were presented as this, you know, happy minority yeah. group that, that loved to sing and dance, right? That, that, that's yeah. how, how it was presented to most, you know, most uh, people in China. And then uh, around that perception started to change around, I say, like late 90s, early 2000s, um, sure. when um, there was uh, there are some uh, uh, um, uh, some Uyghur migrants start moving to um, inland Chinese cities like Beijing, Shanghai, uh, looking for work uh, and economic opportunities. But at the same time, yeah. there were some um, unscrupulous uh, gangs who were kidnapping uh, Uyghur children to train them as, as thieves, like basically in the style of um, Slumdog Millionaire for people yeah. who seen that movie. And that really created this strong negative stereotype associated with Uyghurs. Um, uh, the the reason this happened is uh, it's it's also because uh, you know the nature of Ch Chinese law enforcement because um, Uyghurs speak a Turkic language and most of the the, the Chinese police in the other part, rest part of the China they don't they don't they they can't speak U Uyghur and uh, when a lot of the thieves like small theft were committed by children well first they're minor and second they, they speak a language that the police don't understand so the police normally just release them yeah and and that kind of incentivized these gangs to employ these these Uyghur children on the streets as thieves and then then a lot of Chinese people they were kind of upset they feel like the the government is not doing anything uh, to to stop this and and then the the Uyghur people got tagged with the stereotypes of being thieves um, and that was that was early 2000 and then around after 2009 Wurumqi riots that's when the the Uyghur people get associated with uh, with a terrorism label. Uh, everything everything changed. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of it's, it's kind of like this gradually get worse worse from from eighties nineties and and two thousand um, yeah. in terms of the, the the perception of the Uyghur among the the, the Chinese populace and exactly. and and uh, how did how did the life change for you like living in uh, Xinjiang at the time. I mean, I, I know you you said it's a gradual process, but uh, in the immediate aftermath, what I remember there was um there was a one year long one year long internet lockdown all throughout Xinjiang, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean that was probably the most notable change, uh, aside from the the fact that there was a more visible military presence. So one of the things that China did is they shipped out. I mean, they they were caught by surprise. Um, with the uh, with the initial riots, but but then they shipped out a ton of military that that they posted all throughout cities, 
in you know pretty much every city out throughout Xinjiang. And so that became the new normal was just seeing these patrols of of um, of military and. Uh, the internet thing was was interesting in that I remember, you know, getting the phone call that evening of July, I think it was July 9th, July, what was it? July 5th, 2009. And um, in that evening, you know, I was just, I, I stayed up late, just kind of looking up news and, you know, seeing what I could figure out. And eventually, probably 1 or 2 a.m., I decided to just go to bed. And I woke up the next morning and it was all gone. Like I couldn't access anything. And we, it, it was this interesting game of, of trying to figure out how long this would last, you know, among everybody. Cause this affected everybody. This wasn't just like, Oh, Hey, just for people that are connecting on, you know, their home networks or just for foreigners or no, this was every single business, every single, like you had to get super special permissions. And I never knew company that got these special permissions in order to have access to the internet. So it had huge economic ramifications uh, sure. within Xinjiang. And and there became, it was kind of a, a joke, but it became known as, we would do something known as um, internet tourism, <laughs> where wow. people would jump on a train in Urumqi overnight on Sunday night. They would land in Dunhuang, which was basically the first town in Gansu outside of uh, Xinjiang. So the, the the closest place you could get to outside of Xinjiang that wasn't in another country, right? And uh, and then they would stay in, in Dunhuang, use the internet for the whole week, and then they would take a train back up to Urumqi for the weekend to be with their family. Wait, and that was, wait. Do people <laughs> actually do that? Oh, my goodness, yes. And and for good reason. Like, you got. I mean, can you imagine right now not having any access to your email or any access online at all in order to do your business? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That makes sense. So, that makes sense. Yes. I yeah. mean, from a business perspective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about people that are just trying to contact their mom and dad, although that was hard enough, too, because not only I don't know if you knew this, but not only was the Internet cut, but so was international calling because the authorities were afraid that there were outside forces that had been influencing all of this stuff. And yeah. so they wanted to make sure that there was no. Uh, no way for people to communicate inside and out. Yeah, in fact, I believe uh, you. So before 2009, you can actually access YouTube, Twitter, Facebook inside China, and I believe it's because of uh, 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 it's in the aftermath of the Wuhan riot that all this uh, social media, um, you know, the, the international U.S.-based social media, Facebook. Twitter and YouTube was cut cut off, blocked in China. Exactly. That is exactly right. And and it remained that way, obviously, until today. I mean, and yeah. that really jump-started. Now, not that there wasn't censorship before that, but I remember before the 2009 riots, I could get on – I had a Blogspot blog, you know, yeah. in Google. I had Twitter. I did all that stuff. But after this happened, it, it really changed the way that expats or, or just even just the Internet in general – was used in China. Yes, yes. Oh, now can we just backtrack a little bit and talk about your experience going into Urumqi just a few days after the riot? I think, you know, very, very yeah. few people heard about that. Um, well, I, I would probably venture to guess that it would feel very similar to walking into some cities right now in China that are going through the coronavirus, where mm. a lot of the a lot of the fear kept people in their homes. 
And, and so it was very empty. It was very um, kind of ghost town-like. There were still kind of a few vestiges of, of the actual riot. So we saw, um, you know, some of the cars that had been, you know, burned out. Uh, we saw some of the storefronts that had been torn down. But generally speaking, it had been cleaned up quickly. Like we were, all, we were there three days afterwards and, and it was, it was, it had been cleaned up. Um, and, and, and then there were plenty of police patrols. And so they would sit or they would stand on a street corner in their formation, triangle formation of threes. So obviously they would have, you know, eyes in every, you know, 360 degrees. And that's kind of the way that the city operated for a long time is just having a lot of this emptiness, um, a lot of, you know, some of the stuff that just hadn't been able to be cleaned up yet. Like it's a lot, it's pretty hard to, to clean up a, um, a shop that's been, you know, kind of torn down and, and put on, you know, set to fire and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it, it was a very eerie feeling that I, that I'll never forget. But I, the funny thing is I never felt like, I never felt scared. Um, I, it was, it was just weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you just came from like a sleepy town like Karamai and then suddenly this this really big change. What um so you stay in Karamai uh, a year after Rumchi riot happened. What what made you decide to leave? Um man, there were a number of factors. I don't think we I mean the internet was one small factor, although I I kind of learned to appreciate not having to not having the distraction of the internet you know <laughs> yes. like I, I don't know if i'd be able to do it now but back then when my life wasn't nearly as dependent like i run an online business now yeah but but i didn't at, really at that point and so it, it didn't matter as much um but yeah it was I'm, I'm sorry i forgot the question i was just rambling about the oh oh no the, no i just well, well, yeah. what made you decide to leave kakaramai after four years yeah, I think ultimately um, it had nothing to do with all of that uh, that had happened. Ultimately, it was that I wanted to do something other than teach English. And mm-hmm. for a foreigner in Karamai, that's the only thing you could do. You couldn't go to school. Right. You couldn't open a business very easily. You just had to teach English. And, and that wasn't my passion. So I wanted to get out of there so I could do something else. Now, did you return to U.S. or did you go to Urumqi directly? No, we returned to the U.S. So we we went there for a couple of years, had my first son in the U.S. Uh, and then when an opportunity came for us to come back out, we decided that we weren't going to go back out to Karamai. We would go back out to Rumchi. Ah, and this was what year? We went back out in 2013. So from 2010 to 2013 is when we were back in the U.S., what um, so what change did you notice when you first uh, when came back to well sort of quote unquote came back to Urumqi uh, basically three years after you left right yeah um man what well, I, I think it had been little changes but it, it like for example going into a grocery store or any other store for that matter you're you're passing through a metal detector. And you're having to open your bags, right? Which at first glance doesn't seem like much. And, and quite frankly, after you live there for a while, you get used to it and it doesn't really make a difference. But but I think when you first arrive, 
and something like that, it 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 tends to be a little unnerving, you know, it's when you jarring. get yeah. yeah, when you when you even just getting on an airplane in in Xinjiang is different than getting on an airplane in the rest of of China. It's not difficult, it's just different, you know? Yeah. Like for example, you arrive at a at an airport in in Xinjiang and you have to put your before you can even enter the the airport, you've got to put your luggage through a scanner. Like, and that's even before you get to the point where you're checking it in. It's like you've got to you've got to go through all this uh, extra stuff. And and I think that was what um, really surprised me more than anything else is it's just like it was two extra layers of security that I wasn't aware of or or ready for. Yeah. Uh, and how long did you guys stay in Urumqi? We were there until 2018, so just about a year and a half ago. Oh, okay. Wow. So, uh, what did you have your second child while in China? Uh, while we were in China, yes, but we actually flew back to the U.S. My wife wanted to have him in a in a in near our family. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, um, so, so do your do your children speak Chinese? Uh, they do, um, but I think that one of the things that they say about kids is that they learn language really fast, which I think uh-huh. is so true. Yeah. But I also believe that the inverse of that is also true. They yes. lose language very yes. fast, yes. much faster than us as adults. And so I think that even just with the year and a half that we haven't been there, um, I think my son's lost most of it. And I think he could pick it up quickly, but he's uh-huh. lost most of his Chinese. Oh, wow. Okay. Um Well, also, what was it like to raise, you know, to have, you know, basically in China with children? I mean, that that's that's very different. I can imagine for many single expat. Yeah, I mean, I I loved not being single <laughs> living overseas. <laughs> okay, I understand. Like, I I met a lot of single people who, um, and this isn't every single person, obviously, but it's like. For me, having my wife and my kids was like built-in companionship that I didn't have to necessarily search for, uh, and I did enjoy that. My boys are both blonde-headed boys. Um, you know, obviously, I think they're cute. They're my boys, but but I think from even from a, a Chinese perspective, obviously, they're they were very cute, and so they would get a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so to the point where one of the things that we had to do as parents is we had to teach our sons. Um, what I would call a, a basically a safe word, um, where if they were being kind of given attention or held onto or, or something like that, or, or asked to be taken a picture of, and they didn't want that, uh-huh. they had they had a word that they could tell us. They they could say a phrase, and we would know, and we would immediately take them away from that situation. Uh-huh. The thing the thing that we didn't we didn't want to like keep them you know, like shun away every Chinese person yeah. but at the same time we didn't want the, our, our kids to learn to to hate the attention of, of yeah. Chinese or Uyghur people right so yeah. we had to find a good balance of the two yeah um wow I mean <laughs> you you had a quite a quite a life I remember you ran a website or blog called far west China right that's correct is that is that still in operation is, is that website still running Yeah, it's still running. I mean, I it's uh, I don't really update it because I'm not living there anymore. But I think that if there's anybody listening to this that's interested in Xinjiang, I think more than anything, I would point you to my YouTube channel, which again isn't being updated either, but still has 
a lot of fascinating videos about that region, about the culture, about the food and everything else. Oh, can you tell people about your YouTube channel, how to find it? Yeah, I mean, everything related to that part of the world for me is under the Far West China um, brand. So if you go into YouTube slash Far West China, or if you go farwestchina.com, or even Instagram slash Far West China, um, everything related to, to that part of the world for me was branded under Far West China. I use, uh, for me personally, I used to be a long-term follower of your blog in Far West China because oh, I, yeah, I just have been fascinated with that part of the world since when I was a little child. And and for like you, I lived precariously through your blog <laughs> for many <laughs> years. Uh, I would just kind of lurk on your blog and highly recommend anyone uh, who are interested in Xinjiang uh, uh, from American perspective, go check it out. Uh, anything else uh, you, you, you want to maybe you want our audience to check out or at this point? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll mention one other thing. I think, um, you know, for anybody that is even planning a trip, not even just out to Xinjiang, even though I highly recommend if you're able to go out there to do that, but just out to China, I, I did write a book on, uh, on just travel around China. It's called Everything You Need to Know Before You Travel to China. So I consider it the book that you buy before you would buy like The Lonely Planet or something else. It, it basically goes through everything that I wish I had known before I first landed. And so that's available on Amazon as well, both as a paperback and an ebook. And uh, Okay, and the title is Everything You Need to Know About China Before You Travel There? Uh, everything You Need to Know Before You Travel to China. So if you just look up, even if you just look up Josh Summers, or you can go to, um, I'll give you the URL right now, it's just travelchinacheaper.com slash travel-guide. And that's where you can get the information on the actual travel guide, but it's available on Amazon there if you want to as well. Awesome. Um, so what, what are you doing? So how did, like, let's uh, backtrack a little bit uh, uh, and fast forward. So how did you <laughs> end up leaving? Boy, that that's a long story. That's a, that, that's a book in itself. It, it was just <laughs> China, China kind of, yeah, China kind of uninvited me unfortunately, just because of the sensitivities of the Xinjiang region. Sure. Like it's just, it's a super politically sensitive region right now. Yeah. And having a foreigner running around with a camera and writing about it, but not them not having control over what I write was, uh, was very unnerving. And so sure. they were happy with that, even though in my opinion, and if you were to look at all of the things that I've written, I would, I would think you would say that I'm very positive, even though I know, you know, I recognize the fact that there's problems in the region. I'm generally uh, positive and upbeat about it, but, but that didn't matter. So they, they asked me to leave. And so that's what I did. Um, and then, you know, we spent a little time in the U.S. and then made our way back out here to Thailand. Oh, so you, you, you caught as a travel bug, huh? You, 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 you is that, is that, um, are you going to make your Thailand your next base or are you still feeling the waters right now? I think we're just feeling the waters right now. I mean, it's, we'll be here for a couple of years, but, um, it's, it's totally different, you know, I'm sure. Have you been here to Thailand before? Uh, I have only been the Southern part of Thailand. Uh, I've been to Phuket, uh, Bangkok, but I never traveled to Chiang Mai or the, the Northern part of Thailand. I heard it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great place. Um, it's, 
it, it's definitely foreigner friendly, although I wouldn't say that they really like, they like travelers. They like tourists. Yes. They don't necessarily like people staying here long term. So it, mm-hmm. it makes it a little more difficult to be here long term. Yeah. I mean, the closest I got is actually uh, in China. I went to this uh, border town in Yunnan on the border with Myanmar. Uh, this is in Mangsi. Uh, wow. uh, yeah, in Mangsi, in the in the Dehong, Dai and Jinpo Autonomous Prefecture, because I have a, a Australian friend um, who in a way is kind of like you. He never been in China before, and his first experience in China was flying into this really remote corner of China on the border <laughs> with Myanmar and teach English there. And, oh wow! And and it's a totally different from like the rest of the part of China because the the part of he where he is first is in Yunnan. It's a very ethnically diverse region, and yep. the part that he was in is in Mangsi. Uh, which is really close to the border town uh, Zhuili, which actually sits on the border with with Myanmar. And so the people there are a mix of Dai ethnicity and mm-hmm. and Jinpo, or or in um in in on the Myanmar side they wouldn't be known as uh, as uh, sh- uh, sh- uh, as Xian and uh, and uh, Kaching. So. But the, the people across the borders are basically, you know, the, the same ethnic groups, different ethnic groups of people who have always lived in that region that just happen to be now divided by international border. Um, so they have a very different culture. And the Thai people, uh, they are part of this uh, Thai-speaking language group that's populate much of Southeast Asia. So they're culturally close to the the thai people of thailand and they celebrate they also celebrate the water festival which is called songkran in, in yeah. thailand on the same day so you know around april 13th april that april 13th 14th 15th that week and and in Mangsi happened to be the largest water festival in china and and that's some something i always wanted to visit and that's that's actually prompt my uh, China trip last year to see my friend out there and and yeah let me tell you it's totally different from 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 rest of China he 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 often told me he said maybe my experience in China is being colored differently because this that's that's all China he know for like years because <laughs> it's it's very different it's very different from, from other parts of China I do highly oh, yeah. recommend you know people to explore all these uh, off beaten path places. Now, would you, given what you know right now, would you still recommend people to visit Xinjiang now? Well, I mean, as long as you come into Xinjiang with an understanding that it's going to be, um, it's not it's not a vacation, it's an exploration, right? Mm-hmm. So you come in knowing that you're going to experience a lot of security measures. You're going to experience checkpoints, um, you know, security checks just on the side of the road and all that stuff. But I do think that what happens is people get this kind of image of Xinjiang or image even of Uyghur people based on what they read in the news. And for that reason, I do recommend people visit Xinjiang because I think what you'll find is you'll learn to um, just see sympathetically and, and, and really be able to uh, understand a little better that people group and that culture um, not, not so that, you know, not for any political reasons whatsoever, but just so that you can humanize, 
um, something. And, and on top of that, it is from a historical and a scenic perspective, it's beautiful. Like it's a yes. great, gorgeous place. It's just, it's, it's not as easy to travel around as it used to be. Um, yep. So as long as you come in with the right expectations, I still think that Xinjiang can be an, an excellent place to visit, but it is becoming harder and harder to do so, I, I will admit. Uh, I, I would recommend people to actually get out there now because, you know, unlike Tibet, which you actually need a special permit to get into, as yep. of today, Xinjiang is still like the rest of China. You can just literally, you know, buy a plane ticket or, or train ticket. You know, once you have your Chinese visa in place, if you're in China, you can just travel there. You know, just yep. you, you, as you mentioned, you will be expecting a lot of more heightened security measures. There will be checkpoints everywhere, cameras everywhere. You will experience all that. But again, you know, this is your chance to experience something completely different. Uh, the, you know, the landscape is out of this world. It's absolutely gorgeous. Different culture, yep. different people, different cuisine. Um, and it's still accessible for most part. So I, yeah. I I recommend people if they want to go, just go now. You know, before before there could be an other possible restrictions. Um, is is there anything else you would like to cover, Josh? No, I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I I thank I can't thank you enough uh, for coming to the show. Uh, you know, I finally put a voice to this uh, author of the blog I have been following for a long time. And and I think you really kind of flesh out um, the, the Xinjiang story and give people a, a taste of the, you know, the, the context of the of the region. And if there is there any other um, place you want people to reach you at other than the, the books and the, the YouTube channel we have talked about? Well, if you want to follow me personally, um, I'm on Instagram and in LinkedIn at Josh S. Summers. So both of those, if you just want to search uh, Instagram or LinkedIn, both, I've got my handle as Josh S. Summers. And I'd love to connect with you. Well, thank you very much, Josh. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you.